Welcome to The Eventful Entrepreneur. I'm Roger Woodall, founder of the Bournemouth Sevens, the world's largest sport and music festival. With all events in 2020 grinding to a halt, I'll be bringing people back together, but in a different way. On this week's episode, I'm chatting to sales, marketing and sponsorship guru, Sean O'Reilly. From selling pitch-side adverts for England football matches to cutting multi-million dollar deals with the late Kobe Bryant. Sean has been there and got the t-shirt and been in the sport and business world for over 20 years. He's a straight-talking, no-jargon entrepreneur and has a lot to say about the highs, lows and pressures that come with it. Here's the man himself, Mr. Sean O'Reilly. Sean, how you doing, buddy? Hello, Dodge. I'm good, thanks, mate. Good to see you. Yeah, mate. Always a pleasure to speak to you, mate. Yeah. Where are you well, at the minute? I'm in Switzerland. Lovely. So we're I'm in um, a place called Neon, just up the road from Geneva. Lovely, lovely. So, nice little offices. Yeah, it's all right, actually. Um, a bit bigger than I need, but it's, um, <laughs> yeah, it's a good spot here. We're um, yeah, well set up. I've been out here for a few years, and um, but yeah, we like it. Lifestyle's oh, good. Mate. good. Good, good, good for you. Well, let's get cracking. Let's get straight back into it. We've known each other for uh, many, many years. Let's uh, tell me about tell me about your journey once finishing uh, Loughborough University. How you got into business and how you got into the sports world? Yeah, it was um, it was a strange one. I mean, look, I left Loughborough like most people do. Most people leave university. You think, oh shit, what what am I going to do now? You know, I've got to start earning money rather than just spending money. Um, I didn't have a clue what to do. I had no idea. And then, you know, like yourself, you know, I'm a sports fanatic. I played every sport to a reasonable level. I was never quite good enough at any particular sport to to do what my dream was, to, to play it professionally. That was never going to happen. So I wanted to work in the sports industry, didn't have a clue how to get involved in it. Um, and many people don't. It's, it's a tough one to, to get into. And I actually I stumbled across a course at Liverpool University, um, which was an MBA in football industries, which was like a big joke amongst the lads at, at the time. Like, what are you doing? Like learning like, nicknames of football clubs or something <laughs> like that. Football industry, what, what is that? You know, it's, uh, and the, I mean, the football business was pretty immature at the time. So having a course where you could study it and learn something about the marketing of football and the economics of football, um, was interesting so I thought well, it gives me another year at university and then I might stumble into a job off the back of it so I did that and it was it was great fun went up to Liverpool um good city I think I met you up there we went to a, a Liverpool West Ham didn't that's we? right while I was up there that's right and um, we were in the West Ham fat the West Ham end and they were all singing um we've got Di Canio you've robbed our stereo <laughs> I remember <laughs> <laughs> quality <laughs> um, but yeah then uh, look, I finished that course um, and then I got a work placement through the course in this company called Skyville and it was a bit of a favour off one of the lads that had done the course before um, had gone to a big sports marketing company called Sport 5 and there was this little agency that he'd dealt with in the past called Skyville and they would, they'd always take a bit of free labour from a university course so I was thrown into this place and I thought, right, the first job, brilliant, put my suit on, go down to this office in, they said the office is in Wembley, just by the stadium. I thought, wow, they deal with a football association. This is big time, this. 
So off I went and turned up at this company. It wasn't Wembley, it was Stonebridge Park. Um, and it was this kind of tower block just off the motorway, well, just off the North Circular. Um, so I've gone in there and they were all thinking, who's this bloody student? What a wanker. What are we going to do with him? Um, so, uh, you know, I said, what do you want me to do? And I said, well, we're a sales company. We sell stuff. Um, but you can sit there and you can think of some companies for the salespeople to sell to. And they were selling perimeter advertising. So, you know, it was advertising boards around football pitches um, for international matches. And I remember just sat there looking up companies on this computer and there was this group of animals next door. No one had a computer on the desk. They had these sort of stacks of cards where they've written the names of companies on these record cards, you know, the old record cards. Yeah. Um, and they were just on the phone trying to sell to these companies. I thought, oh, God, I'd love a go at that. Give me a go at that. So first day of this kind of placement, I said, give me a go on your sales team. I want to do some sales. And... Um, so off I went and I just started picking up the phone and calling up out of a directory. It was companies in Croatia, Scotland against Croatia, flogging perimeter advertising boards to Dragomir and all this, <laughs> these Croatian guys. And I just enjoyed it and I just found it something I could do. And then, you know, I finished my course and went back there and, and started no basic salary, um, selling advertising on international football matches. Um, so that was the start of it. I mean, it was a crazy place. You know, it was a, you know, when I say it was a group of animals, it was a group of animals, but no, no one had a salary. Um, so you had to, you know, it was paying rent in London, you had to sell stuff to pay your rent. Um, commissions were great. I mean, I remember, you know, selling perimeter advertising on Lebanese basketball. I said, like, what the hell do I know about Lebanese basketball? You had this sales director, you know, you weren't allowed a computer. So go find some Lebanese companies. So I was walking down the Edgware Road with a notebook going into Lebanese supermarkets. Writing <laughs> <laughs> down the name of any Lebanese company I could find. And then I'd go into, get into the office at six o'clock in the morning. I was calling them all up. And you know, we had this cancellation pitch where, you know, the, the we, we were selling, you know, we hadn't sold anything, but it was always the last board. You always sell the last one. So you called these companies up and, he said, look, I've got the Nike position right in the middle, right right opposite the TV cameras. I thought, what, the Nike position? Said, yeah, Nike can't go on the game because the Federation sponsored by Adidas. Adidas won't let Nike put their ball out. We've got this last position available. You know, it's normally, you can never, no one can buy it. You know, it'll cost hundreds of thousands, but we need your logo right now. If you send me your artwork right now, we'll put your logo up on this game. The whole country will be watching it, and you know you get someone offering 20 grand for this advertising board that was worth about 50 quid. And we just sort of repeat that over and over again, but it was, it was a hard school of sales. And you know, that's where I started off. So that was kind of around the 2000, 2001. And how long were you at Skyville for? And tell me some of the deals that were cut in terms of finances. Yeah, it was, um, I, I was there in the end about eight or nine years. And that, I mean, the company went from being this, sort of real sales house. It, it did start to professionalise, but, you know, I ended up sort of leading the sales team there. Um, I had a team of about eight or nine people. Um, and, you know, I managed to get them basic salaries. Not not much, <laughs> a few quid. I was still very commission focused. I was there, like, yeah, eight or nine years, I'd say. Um, but we were selling everything from, you know, we, we sold a lot of England matches. Um, when I say we sold them, it was the 
So we'd, you know, we'd bring the, it's when LED advertising systems, you know, the advertising you get around the edge of the pitch yeah. um, where the companies have their logos. So we'd start putting those systems into, um, into international matches. So a lot of England internationals. Um, and then we were selling the advertising rights on those, on those matches. Um, we started to get involved more in sponsorship sales. Um, so doing some sponsorship for different events, um, you know, the ice hockey world cup we were selling the figure skating world championships you know this strange sort of sports but it, you know we just had a team of blokes and girls who would, would get on the phone speak to people negotiate very very hard um to get deals done and you know we, we just became very good at being a sales to be a service provider for rights holders and service provider for federations who couldn't sell their inventory, mm. we'd come in and we'd, we'd get the job done. You know, we'd, we were able just to get deals done. So, so for example, just break it down for me, the business model. Would you buy the perimeter boards off Wembley at a certain price and then yeah. you would go and sell it for anything you want and you'd keep the money on top? Yeah, well, it was actually, um, I mean, what we'd do, we'd go to smaller federations. So we would go to football federations like Lithuania, Romania, Croatia, Slovenia, the smaller federations, and we give them a guarantee um, for their perimeter advertising in inventory for a qualifying cycle. So for the qualifiers for the Euros or qualifiers for the World Cup, and we'd package up their rights. So they'd, they'd play four, four home matches and we'd sell perimeter advertising on those home matches um, into the market. Um, most of the games were rubbish. You know, with Croatia play against the Faroe Islands, you can only sell it into Croatia. But if Croatia draw against England, then you can sell that space into the UK. Yeah. And so you're paying Croatia prices for the rights, but then you're selling into the UK. So there's a massive upside there. So give, give, me, an, give me an example there, Sean. How much would you pay for a Croatia-England perimeter board for one game? You know, for that, if you took the whole, if you took the whole business model and said, right, we'll take, we'll take it off you, uh, Croatia Federation, how much would you pay for that? Oh, it was it, back in those days. I mean, these are, this is when the market was so immature, um, and the federations didn't know the values. Uh, there's so much more data around now, so there's a lot more transparency. But I mean, we were buying these things for a grand a time, and then you know, in the UK, you'd sell it for 15, 20 grand. Um, I mean, the, you know, the markups were extraordinary. Um, but we were selling so much, so much football. We, we were saying, you know, Europa League, it was UEFA Cup back then, um, selling matches into the Russian market, Romanian market. Now, back, back then, you know, Eastern, Central and Eastern Europe was our kind of hot bread because, uh, hot pot, because um, the, they were massively growing economies. You've got Western businesses desperate to get into Central Eastern Europe, particularly Russia, Romania, Poland was a big developing market. And the way they do it is advertise. You know, they want to put their brand all over the market. Um, so we were going, you know, a lot of Western companies that were entering these Eastern European markets. Um, and a great option for them was to be associated with the national football team in those countries. So, you know, the market was just booming and booming and booming. And then, I mean, it all changed quite quickly around you know, 2008 when the you know, the market just drops drastically. Um, it got a lot more difficult to sell, um, particularly selling the way we were selling. You know, it was one phone call. We, we had a sales director when I first started there. You, you know, you had to sit down until you'd done a deal. 
it was it, it was mad. You know, because be, be, it was all commission only. There were there were fights in the office over whose lead was whose lead, and it was just madness. People are just standing up. No one sat down the whole day. You know, once you've done a deal, you're given a chair. Yeah. I mean, it, it was it was brutal. Um, you know, I remember one day seeing a colleague of mine. It, you know, he wasn't allowed any lunch because he hadn't done a deal. So I go to the toilet and I see him sat on the car seat having a having a BLT. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, it, it was madness. But mate, but you, you know, know what? It, what I lo- what I love about these stories is that it's real. This is yeah. real, you know. And and for anyone listening into this, that businesses have to start somewhere. And you know, when you're looking back now, twenty years ago. It's amazing. I've watched your journey, and I've watched a, a fantastic journey you've been on the last twenty years. What was the next move for you after Skyville? After doing that, how did that door open for you, essentially, to move to the next company? Yeah, well, I mean, Sky, Skyville was growing very quickly and making a lot of money. Um, so the big agencies were starting to look at being acquisitive. They were looking at buying agencies and um, you know, growing their business, particularly in sales. Um, so there were companies that were looking to buy um, Skyville, and the biggest one was Sport5. So Sport5 at the time were the biggest sports marketing company, certainly football agency in the world. Um, they had the rights to 35 football associations um, you know, across Europe. Example? Um, but, um, all of those Central and Eastern European federations were the strongest ones. Um, the biggest one was France, the French um, football federation, Sport Five, had a big business there. They were owned by the shareholders were French at the time, um, so it was a big part of a big French um, conglomerate called Lagardère. Ah. Um, so, I mean, they looked at buying Skyville, and then they realised that um, as a business, it wasn't worth a lot. It was only worth the value of their their sales staff. So, they recruited me. Um, so, I moved over to Hamburg, um, spent a couple of great years in Hamburg. Um, and that was interesting because you go into this big sports marketing agency where it was very German. People were very professional. People had computers on their desks. I, mean, <laughs> I haven't seen that before. Um, and, you know, they operated in a very different way. And I, I remember my boss at the time saying, you know, what do you need? So I just need a, a phone and a headset. <laughs> you know, you're in this big agency where they had a very Germanic way of selling stuff. So, you know, send out your brochure, send your presentation, um, introduce yourself very slowly and subtly, subtly. And, you know, there was me just sort of prancing around the office with my headset in, calling up everyone that I could get hold of and try to sell them stuff. And, uh, but it worked. You, you know, they, they thought it was some sort of animal. Inzalafen, they called me, um, which means um, island monkey. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. So you were in Hamburg for two years, were you? Yeah, I was there for a couple of years. So, um, you know, the idea was to grow a international sales team out of out of Germany. That that business was was very much focused on media rights, so selling TV rights for international football. Um, previously, the sponsorship and marketing rights, so they're advertising around the pitch or the the partnerships with the federation that outsourced it all to different agencies. Um, so I came in to try and create this team in-house and then I started to grow a team. Um, so I was there for a couple of years and then they moved um, our international business to Geneva. 
Um, so I moved with my team uh, to Geneva in around 2013. So I was there. Um, I was then, you know, we, we carried on the same sort of business, growing an international sales team, selling football sponsorship, essentially, um, across all, all across Europe. But it was it was the same sort of thing. You know, the deals were bigger, but the sell, the same principles yeah. of how you sold stuff yeah. were exactly the same. Yeah. Um, you know, so so I always adopted what I'd learned in the hard school of early sales into selling bigger properties. Mm. Um, so so give me an example. You talk about media rights. Give me an example of what you would pay for media rights for a football match to sell those TV rights, and then what would you be selling them on for? Well, I mean, the way the, the model was very much, um, you know, you'd, you'd need to make guarantees to football federations. You know, and back then, I mean, the, you know, there was less transparency in the market, as I mentioned earlier. So um, you would go to a, a president of a football federation um, and give him a guarantee for a period of time. I mean, the, the deals were all structured very differently. But you know, if, if we took one isolated example of a, say, one England international, um, so it was an England-friendly match against Germany. You might go in as an agency um, and make a guarantee um, for the television rights um, and the sponsorship rights and the perimeter rights. <sighs> what you'd offer? I mean, it's, it's hard to say. It's hard to say. I mean, my, you know, my, we, we were making on just on the perimeter advertising for one England international, you could generate around £800,000 by selling 90 minutes of LED advertising. Wow. And what would you pay? And what would, and what would you pay the FA for that? It, it, it varies. But, you know, I mean, the, the margins have shrunk and shrunk and shrunk over time. Um, you know, as people have become more, more aware of what the, the actual sales price is. But... I mean, back from the early 2000s, you know, you, we were making sort of 70%, 80% margins. I mean, it was, it was massive. Nowadays, you know, the agencies do very well to earn 15 to 20%. Yeah. So if you, if you were to make 800 grand, for example, uh, via Wembley for a game, an England game there, what would you have paid for that? You'd rarely guarantee more than 200,000. Is that right? That's certainly back in the earlier days. I mean, wow. the guarantees were quite low then. Um, yeah, and federations were very, very happy just to take the cash. Certainly, yeah, and the businesses I was involved in, we, we would focus on those smaller federations. Um, you know, the FA, the English FA was very, you know, they had a very different model where only the sponsors could be visible on, on the matches at Wembley. Yeah. Um, so we wouldn't be able to sell the pure perimeter advertising on the home games at Wembley. But um, for an away game, when England played against a foreign federation, you know, they play in Romania, then... We go to the Romanian Federation. They were delighted to get two hundred grand, you know? yeah. and then they'd have no idea that we were selling it for a million. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, for them just to take that, take as an upfront payment, the deal was done very quickly. And how how quick how quick was it for you go and cut a deal, say with the Romanian Federation? How quick was it for you to actually cut the deals to get that million pound in? Do you pay them two hundred grand up front to get the million quid in to earn yourself eight hundred grand profit? How quick was that? Oh, the turn the turnaround then was very quick. You know, you would, I mean, as soon as the draws made, and that's that where all these deals were done when there was a, a the qualifying draws were amazing. So you go for the say it was the qualifiers for Euro 2008. Um, so you know, when it 
all the federations get put in their different groups. So you know who England has to pay to, play to qualify for the Euros. Yeah, as soon as that draw is made, you're there on site. You're speaking to the different federations. So you'll go to the president of the Azerbaijan Federation and say, I'll give you 200 grand for this match. Then you go to the Romanian one, I'll give you 200 grand for this match. And you go to these different people. And you, I mean, these sort of deals were done on a handshake and a, some numbers written down on a napkin. And then you sort of work out what you got the next day. You put it all into a big spreadsheet and then you allocate your team onto selling these different matches to try and make your upside. Yeah. And did you yeah. find there was much competition? So when you knew that the when the games are coming out, you're thinking... God, I've got five other companies. I better get to that federation quicker than everyone else. Yeah, it was pretty competitive. I mean, there were a few big sports marketing agencies that were in the market at the time. Um, sport Five was the biggest. And, you know, we had the biggest team, so we had a lot of resource to be able to sell that inventory. So we'd usually come with the biggest guarantees. Um, IMG were very involved in that business. Other ones you might have heard of. Infront was another. Um big Swiss um, sports marketing agency. Um, a company came up, turned up called Cantaro um, that was around for quite a while. It was very aggressive in the market. But yeah, I mean, it was a it was a group of guys negotiating for these rights, for these television rights and marketing rights. What would made you stand out over others to win that deal? Uh, for me, I mean, look, I was always very open with people. I think I've always been very open with relationships, whether it's personal relationships or business relationships. And um, many of them have merged into the same sort of things. And I mean, I, I think that's the joy of the, this industry. You know, the sports industry is a relationship industry. Um, and, you know, if, if the numbers are about the same, you'll always go with the guy you trust. You'll always go with someone that that's never screwed you over. That's got a good reputation and, I mean, your reputation is your most valuable currency in this market. And I've seen a lot of people burn bridges in the sports industry, um, try and chase some quick money, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. The, the market's too small. It's um, People look at the sports industry and think, wow, there must be millions of people working in it. There, there, there aren't. There aren't millions of people working in it. It's a small industry. So, um, you know, I've always made sure I was very honest and very straight with people um that i deal with on a professional basis so um you know i've always protected that relationship which set me set me up for the future really so what was your what was your next move then so you were at sport five for how many years and what year did you start there yeah well, i did from 2009 to 2013 i was involved in the sort of international side of sport five from hamburg and then in Switzerland. So that was the, the rights trading start side with international federations. Um, and then that business was almost shut down overnight. So UEFA, um, to the European of European, um, the Union of European Football Federations, um, it's our umbrella body that governs football in Europe. Um, they took all these rights in-house. They saw these big agencies making huge markups, huge margins on television rights and sponsorship rights of what they saw as their federations on their properties. So UEFA took the rights in-house. Um, Sport5 didn't win the contract to partner with UEFA to sell those rights. So that business was almost shut down overnight. Um, so I then went um, to the UK where there was a, a big division of Sport5 that works UK football industry. Um, so I, I took a job as commercial director of Sport5 UK in 2013. Um, 
I think I've got my dates. I've got my dates right. Yeah, around 2013. Then um, Sport Five in the UK was, was a great move for me because I always thought I'd end up in the UK. I loved UK football. Um, puts you on the dance floor with all the Premier League clubs. Um, so in the Sport Five in the UK, it was similar. Sort of per, selling perimeter advertising, LED space sponsorship with UK football clubs, and we had the rights to probably 30 clubs. Um, including 11 or 12, depending season to season, Premier League clubs. Um, so then you're working with a lot of the you know, UK clubs, you know, your Newcastles and Aston Villas and Southamptons and Sunderlands we had, um, you know, and you, you then get ingrained into UK football industry. And, you know, from those days, I've got a lot of good mates that are still at those clubs and we still speak a lot. Um, just working in the, in the UK, it was good fun. Did you ever do it? Did you ever do any deals on shirt sponsorship? You know, on the front of the shirts of the Premier League clubs. Yeah, yeah. So we, I mean, when when I first went over to to the UK with Sportfire, it was very much a perimeter advertising business, um, and then we tried to grow it. And you know, the the growth area really was with sponsorship. Um, so we started to go to clubs and say, you know, we want to exclusively represent you for your shirt sponsorship sale. Um, so the first one we did while I was there was with Southampton. Um, where, you know, we went down to Southampton. They were looking for a new shirt sponsor. Um, we talked about you know, the scale of our business internationally. We can attract um, potential buyers from all over the world. Um, Premier League's a global property. So you don't really sell a Premier League shirt into the UK now. It's, you sell it globally. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we, we, we brought a company called Vivo um, in to be the Southampton shirt sponsor. Um, we were then involved in some shirt sponsorship deals with, with some other clubs, um, with, uh, West Ham. Um, so we were involved in a, in a West Ham shirt sponsorship That was a special deal, deal right? Oh, the, the, come on the irons. Come on the irons. Good club to work with West Ham. Um, yeah, it's, um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's. Who are you dealing with at West Ham? You're dealing with, um, Karen Brading, no. Sullivan, no, Gold? At, at the time it was a guy called Barry Webber. Um, Barry, good mate of mine. Um, he's a commercial director there. Um, so it's Barry and he's at Crystal Palace now. And a lot of these guys go from club to yeah, club. Yeah. And what was jobs. that? What was the sponsor uh, back then at West Ham? Well, they had Alpari. I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How much did and they pay? Alpari, they paid about five million a season, but then then they went bump. So That's right. Alpari had some huge financial problems. Um. And then we came in and we helped them bring, I can't remember the name of the brand now. Was it a betting partner? Was it Betway? Uh, Betway, I think, was later. Later, yeah. It was, it was one after, it was one in between. So they, were pay, they paid £5 million for a season. Yeah. And how, how, many seasons, how many years was that deal done for originally? Yeah, I mean, usually a club will ask for a three to four year deal. Um, nowadays, those uh, getting... getting th- Long-term commitments, particularly for the smaller clubs, is hard. Um, so now, nowadays, most of the shirt sponsorship deals you'll see, particularly at the low end of the Premier League, are around uh, usually a two two-year deal. Um, but it was, it was staggering. I mean, the difference in valuation between Premier League shirts. I mean, you've got you know Manchester United selling their shirt sponsorship for fifty million quid a season. Wow. You know, I remember going to we went to Aston Villa um, to sell their shirt sponsorship and. You know, you've got a guy a guy called Tom Fox who came in as the chief exec at Aston Villa. He's saying, look, right, Manchester United get 50 million for their shirt. You know, I want at least 30 for ours. 
we said, you'd be lucky to get three. Yeah. You know, that's the, and the disparity of the valuation of, of Premier League shirts is it's incredible. Mm. Um, you know, you've still got a lot of clubs even now scratching around just to get, you know, three million, four million quid on their shirt. And, and it's generally going to betting companies at the lower end, whereas at the top end, it's, you know, Real Madrid are going to market now at 70 million euros for their shirt sponsorship. Wow. It's incredible. Wow. Don't you think it's amazing how you've seen the Chinese betting companies come in over the last three, four years? Tell, tell me some stories about that. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, the betting market, it's, it's a difficult one. And it, for, for Premier League clubs or UK football in general, it's kind of your, your low-hanging fruit. Um, it's the one sector where demand outstrips supply. Um, and the betting companies, I mean, you've got your UK-based betting companies, you know, Bet365s, your William Hills, your Labrooks, your Betway to an extent, um, and then these Chinese betting companies. And it is betting advertising and betting in general is illegal in China. And advertising of betting companies is, is, is illegal across nearly all of Asia. Um, but those betting companies make huge money. I mean, the Asian markets are by far their most profitable markets. Um, so they need a way to advertise um, to their customer base in Asia. They can't advertise locally, so they look at a product like the Premier League, which is broadcast so globally, um, and it gives them the ideal opportunity to reach their customer base in Asia without having to come in you know, legal issues by advertising locally. I mean, it's also, you know, it's a way you'll see you know, a Chinese betting company sponsoring Sunderland. <laughs> so they'll put their logo on Sunderland's shirt. And then, you know, you go down the street in Vietnam and you'll see it's, it's you know, that betting company can't advertise on a billboard in Vietnam, but they'll advertise the football club of Sunderland just as a way to show their logo yeah. locally. So it's, you know, it, it, it's something that's come into play more and more. Um, clubs don't want to partner with betting companies per se, but the money's just too good for them to turn down. You know, you could get 8 million from a betting company, whereas you might get one and a half from a non-betting company. So everyone just takes the revenue at the end mm. of the day. Mm. How do you see that going then? Because I can't see that lasting very long. You, we saw how it, you could never put sort of cigarettes on the front of shirts anymore or alcohol brands. I'm sure the only way it's going to go is not having it on there. Yeah, I, th I think it's, it's possibly a matter of time. I, I think maybe COVID has decelerated that process because... So many clubs are struggling financially now with no gate receipt that they need that revenue to make sure they can keep playing their paying their players and keep the club afloat. Um, but yeah, there, there has been a lot of local lobbying for certainly less betting advertising or if not no betting advertising at all. I mean, I think where it becomes an issue is with, with the shirt sponsorship. You know, you don't want children to be buying shirts with betting company logos. Um so, you know, the, the, the clubs do now see a responsibility. They have a responsibility for that. So they, on the kids' shirts, they don't put the sponsor logo. But the kids want to buy a shirt with the sponsor logo. So it's it becomes it becomes difficult. How, how's um, the market going to go, Sean? Because you take a big chunk of money off the front of shirts. That's a, that's, that's a huge loss to clubs. It, it, it's massive. And, and I think now in the Premier League, there's probably 12 clubs 
with a betting company on their front of shirt. In the championship, you go further down. I'd be amazed if there were any less than 15 of the 20 clubs in the championship with betting companies on the shirts. Um, So it's the major source of income for them from a sponsorship perspective at the moment. But at the same time, I mean, football clubs, community clubs, you know, you... um, they do have a responsibility, a social responsibility um, to protect their their fan base. Mm. I mean, maybe maybe there's a, a happy medium in the short term where, you know, you, res- you restrict the amount that the betting companies can target with social media, with live odds, um, a younger audience demographic. But it, yeah, it, it is a difficult one. Mm. It is a difficult one. Um, yeah, and the government is certainly looking at ways to restrict betting companies' ability to be um, so front and centre across mm. across football matches. Do you think? Do you think the next the next big sort of industry to come in might be CBD? Other industries to take those front of shirts, but they're not going to be paying the money that the uh, betting companies have been paying. No, they're not. They're not. I mean, there's yeah, there's always certain um, sectors that are hot at given times, uh, periods of time. I mean. Yeah, I remember when, you know, when I was in Sport Five in Germany, there was a big thing where governments were giving um, tax breaks for solar energy. So, uh, you know, solar energy companies were all coming into the market, and they think, how do we advertise really quickly? A very quick and easy way to reach a massive amount of people is through football. You know, it's it's, it's the people's game; everybody's watching it. And you know, now if you look at the um, the online takeaway companies. You know, you see a huge amount of Deliveroo and Just Eats and Takeaway.com. You know, all of these companies have suddenly come into the market. And as soon as they come in, football is a very quick route to market. Um, so there's always different market dynamics. But certainly, I mean, the the amount of money coming from the betting industry, it's growing exponentially year on year. Um, and you think at some stage it's going to cap or it's going to drop off. But I don't think it will. I, I think it will keep growing until there's some legislation that prevents the betting companies from being there. Um, you know, and there, there are, you know, if you look at a company like Bet365, I mean, Bet365 is a UK registered company and they're based in Stoke. They're a huge employer in Stoke and they pay UK taxes. Um, so, you know, do you kick can you kick a bet 365 out or, or do you just firstly deal with the Asian ones that aren't paying UK taxes or aren't registered here or aren't really even targeting a UK audience? They're targeting, targeting Asian audiences where they're trying to beat the system by, by advertising on the, on the Premier League because it's illegal for them to advertise locally. It's a, it, it's a difficult one. So yeah, so how long were you at Sport Five for? What what sort of year are we talking now? What was your next move, and how did you open that door for the next move? Yeah, well, it's um, so in twenty fifteen, um, I had a call from um, an agency back back in Switzerland. So, um, and that agency was called CAA Eleven. Um, so when I mentioned that when UEFA shut down that international football rights trading, that's because they took their rights in house. And then there was one agency who got the rights to sell all of UEFA's international football properties. Um, and that was CAA 11. CAA is, I mean, it's the biggest sports agency worldwide, but it's a big US-based talent agency. Um, so the, they were born out of out of Hollywood, really. So if you look at your, 
your Tom Cruises and Brad Pitts and Angelina Jolie's and George Clooney's and these guys, they're generally represented by CAA um, out of the US. Um, they also have a very big sports division where they represent a lot of NBA players, a lot of NFL players, a lot of American sports stars. Um, they wanted a bigger business in Europe. They wanted to grow in Europe and grow in television rights and sponsorship rights. Um, and so CAA managed to secure the commercial rights for UEFA's international football properties. Um, so I got a call to go in there and manage sponsorship sales um, for CAA. Um, so I joined a team there um, and it was you know, selling sponsorship for UEFA. Um, so, so that was the European Championships. So Euro 2016 was the first project um, in Euro 2016 in France. And then starting the sales process on for Euro 2020, which should have been this year. Um, so I, I, I moved up, back over to Switzerland, been dragging my wife and kids around Europe for a while. <laughs> She's, so she told me I've got one more move left in me, so I'll see where that goes. But yeah, so I came back over to Switzerland um, to sell um, UEFA's sponsorship rights. And how was that? Was that very different from the past two uh, jobs you've been in? It, it was, mate. Yeah, it was very, very different. Um, it was different in that, I mean, firstly, the, I mean, the product was amazing. UEFA is seen as a as an extremely pre prestigious organisation to work for. You know, they're they're two they're three properties really. They've got club football, which is the Champions League and the Europa League, and then they've got international football, which is all around the Euros. Um, and those events are massive. I mean, you know, this and the you know you're used to selling things for yeah you know, anything from ten grand up to a you know, a shirt sponsorship at 5 million quid, and then you're going to market at 80 million. Wow. Um, you know, you're going to your, your Volkswagens and your Coca-Colas and your McDonald's and your Visas and MasterCards. So for me, it was a, yeah, I a very good network that you've grown over the years. And that's the joy of being in sales. You're speaking to people all the time. Um, so you grow your network, you grow your relationships. But there was a certain level that where I wasn't networked. And that was with your biggest brands in the world. That's your sort of visas and MasterCards and Cokes and McDonald's and these companies that tend to sponsor those big ticket items. And there aren't many of those big ticket items. Really. You know, it's the Olympic Games, the FIFA World Cup, the Champions League and, and the Euros is one of them. So that gave me an opportunity to, to really be on the dance floor with the biggest brands in the world. Um, so I enjoyed that ex experience. Um, yeah, you also then... It gave me a good education into the mix between sport and politics. And really, the yeah, UEFA is a very political organisation. You know, they're a representative body of 52 football federations. Um, you know, they've got these beautiful big offices down by the lake. and In Geneva? Really, yeah, well, it's Lake Geneva. It's just up the road from Geneva and Neon. Um and yeah, it's an extremely corporate political environment. Um, and, you know, I, I still retained my attitude and my work ethos that I developed years ago. And, you know, from get on the phone and step, sell stuff, do deals. And, you know, and I was still the same. So they thought, they thought it was a little rough around the edges. But, um, but, you know, I was able to go in there and, you know, make it a, a positive impact. Um, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. It was a, 
it was the one experience of working at a big organization, global property. That that was the one of the things that was missing from my career path so far. So, so yeah, I, I, I enjoyed it. it good. What was there? Did you have any dealings with Set Blatter while you were there? When the, was that all going off at the time? No, um, it it was actually. I think when I first got there, that was the time when you know the shit was really hitting the fan. Um, so the president of UEFA at the time was Michel Platini. Um, Platini, uh, it was right in the middle of the, all the scandals when I went over there in 2015. And then Platini made his move for to be UEFA president, uh, to be FIFA president. Um, then there was all of the allegations of, of corruption between Platini and Blatter. Then Gianni Infantino, who's now the FIFA president, uh, he was the general secretary of the UEFA at the time. He made his political move. Um, and managed to secure enough votes to become the the FIFA president, but it's yeah, I mean, the, it's the the way that it works with those organisations. It's a lot of it's about votes, a lot of it's about politics. You know, it's hosting hosting a World Cup, for example. I mean, you know, FIFA's trying to create the perfect democracy in a way where all federations have an equal vote, but then it, it can cause issues when. You know, the smallest football federation in Asia or in Africa has the same voting powers as Germany. And, you know, of course there's corruption. You know, a lot of the world has operated on corruption for years and years and years. Um, There has been well-documented cases of corruption within the highest echelons of, of football. And there's there's a concerted effort that it's cleaned up. Um, is it unavoidable? I think so. I think it probably is to some extent, but yeah, you know, I, I was witnessing um, the, you know, the FIFA scandals as you were from afar. Um, I was very much you know, involved in the commercial side and commercializing UEFA's rights. Um, so I wasn't directly involved in the political side of things, but you know, it does it does tarnish the reputation of of the sport that we love, um, and hopefully, you know, steps are being put in place to to make sure that we don't go down that slippery road again. Mm. Amazing, mate! Amazing to to hear these stories. So then, what? So how long are you there at CA CA eleven for? CA eleven. That was uh, that was four years. You know, four, four years of speaking to the. It's a big brand selling a big property. Um, and it was enjoyable. It was enjoyable. But, you know, Dodge, I, I, I always had this had this plan um, to run my own business. Um, I always thought that this that CA11 could develop my career into the next step. You know, you're always sort of thinking of the next step, aren't you? You know, what's next? What's next? I'm, always I'm, five moves ahead, mate. Yeah, you've got to be. So... So I was often thinking about the next move, what, what we'll do next. And um, so I thought, right, let's, um, you know, I, I spent four years there and I, I enjoyed it a lot. It was good experience, good, great people. Um, but then it was time to to make my even set, set up my own business. Good for you, mate. So 2018, talk to me about 2018 when you set up your own business and tell me about the last couple of years. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a roller coaster ride. Um, it's, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, November, it was November 2018. I sort of made made the move. I walked into you know, it was that sort of going into your boss's office and say, look, here's my resignation. Yeah, and 
those sort of jobs, you know, a lot of people want those types of positions, selling a big property. They don't get many resignation letters and they sort of think, well, what are you doing? You lost your mind and probably, um, yeah, and the assumption is that you're going to work for someone else. I said, no, I'm going to start my own business. Yeah, and they think, really? What now? <laughs> you know, why would you do that? And I so, said, yeah, it's something I've always wanted to do. Um, yeah, and they were thinking, well, what are you going to do? I said, sell stuff, <laughs> try and make a few quid, <laughs> work it out as I go along. You know, <laughs> so. Uh, so yeah, I, I I I registered this business in you know the end of 2018, and yeah, I officially finished everything up with CA11 in in February 2019, and then I was up and running. And it was um, you know, it's one of those things. You you know, you kind of you go from having a nice salary and your kids in private schools in Switzerland, crazy overheads, and giving it all up and telling your wife, right, no salary, let's roll the dice and see what happens, and. Um, so it started with me in the basement on my own. Um, you know, I didn't. I had a, a little bit of financial support from um, uh, an investor, but uh, you know, I thought that's enough to get me through the first year um, and see how we get on. And you know, to start, I was sort of toying between you know, one school of thought is I want to grow the biggest sports marketing company in the world, and then um, you know, you then sort of thinking maybe it's just all right me on my own doing deals. But then, I'll, you know, I kept there was sort of the two sides of me, but then the, the big ambitious one always won that argument. And, but yeah, for, for me sat on the basement on my own, trying to flog whatever I could, you know, I was selling a sponsorship for speed skating, you know, for anything, anyone that would give me the rights to sell. I thought, right, let's sell it. And I mean, every, everything sort of from doing a few deals here and there, sort of selling a few football matches, selling a few, um, different sports properties. Um, and I was just keeping afloat, I was doing okay. And then um, a mate of mine who worked for FIBA, the, the Basketball Federation, um, told me, you know, they've got a few packages to sell. I thought, Basketball World Cup is in China. I, I can sell that for you, mate. I've got just the man. So, uh, you know, the sort of roller decks comes out. You think, right, who can buy basketball? Um, World Cup's in China next year. Um, so I ended up doing a deal with Aeroflot, the Russian airline. Wow. Um, Big player. Yeah, I mean, it's a, you know, it's a huge global airline that had big growth ambitions. Um, China, I knew China was a really important market for them. They're trying to, Aeroflot are trying to win the race from sort of the flights to China. So the quickest way to get to China and to most of Asia from Northern Europe is via Russia. Mm. Like a lot of people have been going Turkish airlines or Emirates or Etihad or Qatar, and then you sort of go down to come back up, but it's quicker to get there going across the top. So, um, yeah, Aeroflot were really investing into that market. And so it was one of those things, you know, just get on the phone, spoke to the marketing director at Aeroflot, and as soon as I put that phone down, I, I knew I had a deal. Um, so, you know, it, it took a lot more work, and, you know, I ended up doing a, a 4 million euro sponsorship deal for the Basketball World Cup, which for FIBA was a big number. Um, and then, you know, I flew over to sort of to China where it was the opening ceremony. We we're going to shake hands on the deal. Um, and I thought I'd sort of take my commission and walk away. That's me. That's me done for a couple of years. I'm all right. And then, you know, the marketing director of Aeroflot said, that, you know, we're very impressed with, with you and um, you seem to have a good agency. He didn't know it was just me in the basement. <laughs> um, Love it. Yeah, I would like you to, 
to do our activation as well. Because you know, when, when you sign a sponsorship, you then normally then go to a big agency to manage all the activation of that sponsorship to make make the assets sweat. You know, you, you sign up, you do a player endorsement, you run the social media, you do the hospitality rights, your on-site activation with commercial displays. There's so much to do with sponsorship activation. It's not really something I was particularly skilled in, but so, you know, we'd ask you to do, we'd like you to consider doing the activation and, but I know you're a small agency. Is that the sort of thing you do? And, and the salesman in you comes out and says, oh, absolutely. That's what we are. You know, <laughs> we, we are an activation agency. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I kind of um, got my sort of sales story out and said, yes, we can do all the activation for you. I've got a big team back in Switzerland. You know, that's what we do. We've been doing that with UEFA for years. Um, come over and meet us. We'll put a strategy together. And anyway, so I, I gave him this big sales pitch. He said, he said, brilliant, let's go with you. And then you know, I flew back to Switzerland. I think, you know, Riley, what, what have you done now? <laughs> You've got to go and get some people. Um, you know, so then I started started recruiting some very good people. And you know, like all businesses, you're you're the sum of your parts, aren't you? You know, we're we're a services company. We're an agency. We're, we're only as good as the people we've got. And you know, I was very lucky to to be able to get some some brilliant um, team members to join me to service that client. What was your feeling like when you left a, I don't know, a 200 grand plus salary to go to start from zero to then all of a sudden catching a a Russian airline and doing a four million quid deal? What percentage would you earn out of that four mil? I can't tell you that, Dodge. (laughs) You'd have to kill me. (laughs) I actually know the percentage. <laughs> I won't mention it if you don't want me to. I don't mention that. <laughs> but it's a nice. It was a. It was a. It was a nice cut. And you know what? I was super proud. When you're going solo, it's ballsy to go solo. But you'll never know. But what I've what I'm taking from here is it. It's the exact same business model, bigger numbers. Yeah, yeah, and and in everything I've done, and that's why I I always look back to those early days of you know, and. I quite enjoyed having a sales director and my first week at work saying, get on the phone, you effing C, you know, pick up the phone, you know, you know, do a deal, do a deal, do a deal. And it, you know, I was always hungry and ambitious. And, and, and I think that's what, that's what makes you work. But look, it, everything in your career is about attitude. I think it's all about attitude and it's all about positivity and enthusiasm. And, yeah, when I made that move to leave to leave a very nice salary, a very comfortable life, a good career prospects, and you know, I'd looked at other jobs. You know, I'd have I'd have headhunters calling me up, offering me big jobs at Premier League football clubs. But this is always what I wanted to do because you know, there gets to a stage where you get caught up in the commercial world, and there's nothing wrong with that. There is nothing wrong with that at all. Um, and I did enjoy it, but. I always had this driving ambition and this driving sort of dream to, to start something on my own. And, and I just thought, I always sort of think, why not me? You know, people, you know, when people say, you know, how are you going to start a business? Well, he started a business and it worked. He started a business. It worked. He started. Why can't I, why, why not me? And I think if you work hard enough and if you have the right attitude, 
Um, and it is scary. It is scary. But, you know, maybe if you're stupid enough to believe your own hype, and believe, believe that you can do it, it can work. Yeah. Um, you know, it's maybe a little bit is, you know, a certain ego you've got or a certain. But I, I like a challenge. I, I like the challenge of having. So I enjoyed the challenge of having no basic salary when I first started. I didn't have a basic salary for years. Um, and it's the same thing when you start your business. You know, you've got no basic salary anymore. You know, what you earn, what your margin is, I mean, then you consider taking a salary. Mm. So, so yeah, it, it was a scary proposition, but it's one that once you do it, it's very difficult to imagine yourself going back into that corporate world. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I wanted to create an environment here that isn't necessarily a corporate environment. It's an environment where people can be entrepreneurial. You know, and that's what I say to my team members I hear. I say, you know, you don't have to check in at not clock in at nine o'clock and leave at 5.30. You get the job done. Yeah, we've got a nice office. I want you to be in the office. But if you want to work from home, you work from home, but you get the job done. And, you know, you know give people autonomy. And it, so... Yeah, there were always certain conditions that I wanted to work under and I wanted to create an environment for me and for other people to work mm. under the same types of conditions. Mm. Good for you, mate. Really good for you. It's lovely to hear you're very passionate and you've always have been passionate and I'm so happy you've gone solo and making a huge success of it. Well, we're trying, Dodge. We're trying. It's been, you know, this year's, uh, this year's been a roller coaster ride, isn't it? I know for, for your business, for my business, for so many, you know, COVID hit, it's, yeah, it's just something you don't expect mm. and you know you have to pivot a little bit and you know like you're doing with this podcast i mean yeah i remember when we spoke very early with this covid times and you know you you're saying Shit, what what's gonna happen that the festival probably won't happen and you know i was very much the same where you know we'd scaled a business up um because we'd won quite a lot of contracts and then you take on resource you take salary you take overheads on and then everything we're involved with in 2020 just stop, 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 stop. You know, um, but that's the you know that's the roller coaster ride of entrepreneurship, I mm. suppose. Mate, it's all about entrepreneurship. I'm, I'm a big advocate of this. That's why I'm so happy you've gone solo, mate. Yeah, well, I'm I'm, I'm enjoying it, Dodge. I enjoy the challenge um, and enjoy trying to do different things and having the freedom to do whatever you want and. Yeah, that, that was the thing when you're in the corporate world, right? Yes, you, you, you're, you're working on a project that someone gives you to work on, or you're selling an asset that someone gives you to sell. Mm. When you're on your own, you can you can you can go in whatever direction you want. Yeah. Um, so you know, I never thought I'd be doing basketball deals. I never thought I'd be dealing with basketball players or dealing with a Russian airline. Just move, just wrong. moving on to that, Sean. Didn't. Didn't you remind me when you did you do a deal with Kobe Bryant? Yeah, yeah, that that was um, so that that was part of this activation of um, of the Aeroflot sponsorship. Um, so we had a couple of things to do for them. We, so they they had the rights, um, the naming rights for the trophy tour. Um, so we had to take um, the basketball World Cup trophy around the world and staged these events in events in different countries. Uh, we, we took the trophy to, I think, 22 different countries. And then, um, you know, they wanted to run a big social media um, campaign. That was one of their big target things. And I said, you know, you want to go 
social media, you've got to go with an ambassador. And they said, right, okay, we need a, a basketball ambassador. And it was kind of like, I can get you whoever you want, guys, no problem. <laughs> you kind of make, make up as you go along. And then, uh, you know, so we're throwing a few names around and then, one of them mentions Kobe Bryant. Oh, fucking hell, I'm going to get Kobe Bryant. <laughs> no problem. Yeah, yeah, you want Kobe. <laughs> give, me, give me a week, I'll get you Kobe. Um, so, yeah, then you sort of make a few phone calls and, and somehow found myself negotiating a, a one-year endorsement deal with Kobe Bryant. Um, and it was great. You know, we, so we're dealing with, dealing with his manager, um, so it went directly sort of to his kind of personal manager, um, and that was she was the toughest negotiator I've ever come across. We, we had to shoot two commercials. Um, the Aeroflot wanted two sort of TV spots with Kobe in it. So then you're getting involved in like scripting TV commercials and storyboarding commercial stuff. <laughs> I know how to do that. Um, so yeah, we, we were like scripting these commercials, and we we had to had to get. Kobe, uh, we're talking about getting him over over in Los Angeles, getting a TV production company, uh, hiring studios, getting makeup and stylists and all this sort of stuff. There's so much things go with it. You know, we had to get him his, his certain bottles of flavour of water that he likes to drink and all these things and much, just everything. Um, so then, yeah, I went over to Los Angeles and you know, worked with a Russian tv production company and a local los angeles tv production company um we had kobe come in and we had him for two hours and we had to shoot two commercials but i tell you what that guy was the most impressive individual i've ever met wow he was unbelievable um he was so prepared like he had an aura about him we we had this studio in los angeles that we rented to and you know, I had all the set ready, had all the extras ready, and um, I'll show you the ads are, are good. But yeah, he walked in there, and he was the coolest dude. He was polite to everyone. Hey man, what's up? What's up? I was like, Kobe, you got to sign this, sign this contract, please. But he was so cool, very, very polite, very courteous, and what an absolute pro, absolute pro. He knew exactly what he was supposed to do. He'd read the script, he'd research things, he'd rehearse things. Like two hours, he was in there and out. And even the uh, like the director were like, oh, my God, mate, if that guy wants to be James Bond, he could be James Bond. Mm. I mean, he'd do anything. Yeah. He, he, he was incredible. So that was a one-year deal, was it? It was, Yeah, it was a one-year deal that took us up to the end of the Basketball World Cup. Um, and during the World Cup, I mean, he was great. I spent a bit of time with him um, during the Basketball World Cup. We had... We went to his kind of private after party. I think I only got an invite because I was with all these Russian air hostesses. <laughs> <laughs> so he wanted to look after his mates. Um, the old tag along. Yeah. <laughs> and the mate. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with them. I'll make the I'll make the teas. What was um yeah. going back going back to that, what what sort of what sort of deal did that look like for Kobe? That one off? I mean, yeah, I mean he, he got a decent number, like an upfront payment. Um, so the, these type of deals, you know, an athlete can get anything from, it, it depends. I mean, they, they, these deals depend on how you're going to use the athlete. Mm. Um, so whether you want global rights or rights just in one territory, whether they're exclusive to a certain category. And then it's time. I mean, with Kobe, for him, like he said to me, he said, for me, it's not about the money. It's about time. I've got, he's got lots of other business interests. He owns 
he owned a production studio. He was writing children's books. He does a lot of, a lot of charitable work. Um, he was very involved in women's basketball. Um, you know, he was a FIBA ambassador. There were lots of things he was doing. So, yeah. I mean, so for two hours of his time, you know, it's going to cost you a quarter of a million quid an hour. Wow. Um, but yeah, it, it was a it was a big investment. Um, but you know, I mean, the guy's sporting royalty. Right? Yeah. You know, you know, he's up there with your Tiger Woods and Michael Jordans or Roger Federer's. I mean, you know, he was a he was the star at the time. Um, you know, and what a tragic thing that happened with, with him and his daughter. And, you know, there were like yeah. seven, eight people on that, on that, on yeah. that. Sad. Very sad. Um, yeah, I mean, I was in the middle of renewing an agreement with him and then you just forget about all the commercial things. And, you know, I have my, um, you know, my friend at Aeroflot, who I'm very close to now, and the management board calling me up saying, Sean, is this real? And it was the first I'd heard of it. You turn mm. on the TV and you think, man, awful awful situation and um you know and then you have to deal with a lot afterwards with you know what do you do with the rights what do you do with the content that you created for them um aeroflot still had some some time left on that agreement and you know we were kind of consulting them on how best to play this and you know you certainly don't want to be seen to be to be capitalizing on the on the situation at the time so it's real sensitivity yeah. about that yeah i can imagine was he was he paid 100 percent up front uh no it wasn't 100 percent, but it was it was very heavily swayed in his in his favor yeah. Um, yeah. you know he holds all the aces and yeah any of these kind of athlete athlete deals they know that a brand wants them yeah um especially for the biggest ones you yeah. know and then I mean, a bit like your Premier League shirt deals, where you know the the difference between between you know West Ham big club getting five million quid and Man United getting fifty. Yeah. Uh, it's the same with the athletes, mm. you know, the the big guys, your Federers and, and and these guys, they command huge amounts of money because you know their time is it can't be sold to as many many brands as possible. Yeah. And but I mean that that's a big growth area, you know, with social media now, you know the power of the athlete is so big yeah. it was very interesting what you say there i had a, uh i had uh, barry hearn on the podcast yeah, and he, oh it's a great one he's a cracker he's a great lad um and he was saying how the power of the of aj you yeah. know it's not it's not the promoter anymore it used to be the promoter now it's the actual boxer yeah yeah it's the individual yeah now and and i think now i, I think the athletes themselves are they're a lot more savvy yeah. than, than than people let on. I mean, you know, I, I've dealt with, with with guys. I mean, Luis Figo is another one we uh, I worked with in the past. I mean, he's super bright guy, super smart guy, and a lot of the time these um, these athletes are underestimated. Underestimated, you know, they know what they're doing and they understand social media. I mean, they're very well managed now. They're a lot yeah. better managed, but you know, they're the guys in the box seat. Um, you know, they can dictate what they do with their time. Um, you know, and, and the the good one that there's, there's some difficult athletes to work with is, you know, there's cer- certain certain athletes you say to a brand that they, they want to do an anti endorsement deal, you say, let's just stay away from that guy, he's a nightmare. Yeah. But, um, you, you know, you know who the ones are, and their time is extremely invaluable to them, it's important, and um. You know, and, and it's all about their reach, the, the yeah. power of their voice. They can yeah. reach so many people. Well, I think that's... People, I, people. 
I think that's massively changed. I think they realise the power the power of the athlete now is due to social media. You know, if someone's carrying 10 million followers or got 7 million followers here or 9 million followers, they know. They know what they're worth. Yeah, yeah, they, they are. And, I mean, people aren't watching advertising, watching TV advertising anymore, are they? No. When was the last time you watched a TV advert? I mean, you know, it, it, and even on a lot of... Um, even on a lot of social, you know, YouTube advert. I mean, you, you, you pr- can't press skip fast enough, can mm. you? Like, mm. skip five, four, four. Come on, skip, skip, yeah, yeah. skip. <laughs> yeah. But it's, um, it, you know, with, with a, when an athlete is endorsing something, it's it's completely different. And it's associating your product, your brand with stardom, mm. with fandom. Yeah. And, you know, you, you talk about, there's, there's, old, there's old sayings of, you know, no, no one is bigger than the club. Mm. Cristiano Ronaldo now he's arguably bigger than Juventus isn't he yeah I mean his reach is bigger than the club's reach (laughs) I think he earns more off the field than he does on the field via social media and and sponsors was it 40 million pound a year off the field yeah I'm sure unbelievable unbelievable Sean before we wrap up here mate have you got a question for me yeah I've got loads of questions for you Dodge (laughs) it's interesting with your business now um, you know, you, you're having to having to pivot a bit and having to dive in doing this podcast. I think it's great, and I love the, you know, it's what you always did, isn't it? Bring people together, and now you're doing it in a different way. I like it. Nice, nice slogan, mate. By the okay. way, <laughs> um, but I mean, what, what's um, you know, often people talk to me in in our industry. I work in. There's so much acquisition, mergers, investment in businesses. I've never really looked at it like that. Like, you know, people want to grow things to sell it. I want to grow, I, you know, I, I want to grow it because I'm ambitious with it and I love it. And, I, and I, I kind of sense that you're much the same. I mean, have you, I mean, you must have had a few people come knocking on your door to say, I'll give you X. What yeah. do you think? Yeah, 100%, mate. You've not gone down that road, have no. you? And I was just wondering why and wondering if you ever will or if it's something that's. I've never, I've never gone, I've never been employed, mate. I've never had a. I've never been employed. Never had a job. I've always been entrepreneur since a young kid. So for yeah. me, I love the journey. I love the challenge. I love waking up and feeling passionate about what I'm going to do. Yeah. And when you're in the sports industry, which we're in, sport and business mixed together, mixed together, and putting on events and making people happy, there is not a better feeling. And yeah. for me, obviously, with the festival, um, I've had many offers from the biggest players around the world. And it's just been something that I'm not interested in because I want to wake up every day and have a focus. It's okay waking up every day and uh, having loads of noughts in your bank, but but then what? There's only so many holidays and cars and houses you can buy. Yeah, you know I'm not yeah. a, I'm not into cars and watches and stuff. And it's just I just love building businesses. I love creating great experiences for people. And I never have in my mind, oh, I'm going to sell out in two years. I want to sell out. I, just not even crossed my mind, mate. I'm enjoying the journey. Really am. Yeah, you know what? I, th- I think that's probably one of the secrets to your success. And yeah, I, I try to adopt the same principle because I think as soon as you're focused solely on the bottom line, I think the quality of what you do, certainly as a service provider, um, it, it, it probably decreases because you're only thinking about the margins. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think if you focus on the product – the money comes with it, doesn't it? Hundred percent, mate. Well, you look at the look at all the companies that have been bought by PLCs, 
real yeah. good entrepreneurial companies and then the, yeah. the the owner goes with it and gets caught up in a PLC. The PLC don't care about feelings. They don't care yeah. about anything. All they care about is the bottom line. Then what happens is the owner who created this brand and he's built the brand up for six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11 years gets bought out. Then he gets pushed out the business. I know. Can you imagine losing control? It's no. It's like someone taking no, a baby. No, yeah. losing control of something you absolutely love. I, I, I don't like the weekends. I can't wait for Monday to start. Yeah. Because yeah. I've got so much ideas going on in my head. I want to create. I want to create new ideas. I want to bring more people in and get involved. And yeah, mate, it's just that it's a huge passion. Being an entrepreneur, mate, is not a better feeling in the world. Fact. No, you're right. You're right. It's not. I don't think it's for everyone. Um and it is stressful. It, it's stressful. It, it, it can be quite lonely. Yeah. I, I don't know if you ever find that, but yeah, you know, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts and there's one guy, there's a guy called Stephen Bartlett. I don't yeah, know. Diary of a CEO. Yeah. It's very, very good. And yeah. He a lot about that sort of loneliness of entrepreneurship. Yeah. And yeah, you know, you've got, I, I didn't have, um, you know, I often toy between the idea of going in with a business partner or going in on your own. I went in, purely on my own yeah. you know i felt like i'm comfortable with being responsible for my own decision making and um i felt that i had a direction i wanted to go in and i want to pursue that and then later on if someone comes on and maybe but it's um problem with a business partner a problem with a business partner is you will end up falling out at some point yeah at some point 100 you'll end up what are you doing for your money you're getting 50 percent. what are you doing you get 50 yeah. percent. why are you working less hours why is your missus wanting you to go home at three o'clock in the afternoon when I'm here till seven? It's just grey. It's just grey air. Yeah, Keep business simple. Go by yourself. Build a little team by yourself, and go from there. Exactly what you're doing, Sean. Yeah, yeah. That's what that's what I've so felt as well. So on that note, buddy, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on today, mate. Yeah, yeah, good to catch up. Really good to catch up. Yeah, mate. I love your honesty. I love your journey. I can relate to everything you're talking about, mate. And I know you're going to be a huge success for the next 20 plus years, buddy. Fingers crossed, mate. So we'll catch up properly soon. Take it easy, Sean. Cheers. Good man. Thanks, mate. Good man. Bye, Bye. mate. Bye. 